And here we are at the end of January, wrapping up our sermon series in the Apostles' Creed, walking through those three declarations. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. These are the three essential confessions of the Apostles' Creed, and we've walked through all three of those together. And it's been sweet. I know I've learned a lot and had a great deal of encouragement in this creed as we've allowed it to to faithfully reflect to us what we found in the scriptures. But this week, as I sort of let us in on last week, we are going to move to a, a fourth topic. It's actually not a new I believe statement in the creed, but it's actually... Uh, one body of persons in the creed that's worth our attention on this final week. It's the church. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church that immediately is following. The creed confesses this Holy Catholic Church. Now, as we saw last week, we saw that we are holy not because of our own righteousness. It does not take a lot of time to disprove any doctrinal position that would would affirm that we are holy in and of ourselves. It would not take a great deal of time to, to disprove that just by looking around. Even in our confession this morning, Isaiah sees God and immediately his response is, woe is me. <laughs> I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. We are not holy because of our own righteousness, but because of the work of the gospel applied in the cleansing and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, which is why this doctrine, this teaching of the church follows the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the triune God applied by means of the Holy Spirit. And we are Catholic, that is lowercase c. It's finally gotten fixed on the screen this morning as we confessed it together. We are the Catholic Church, not because we belong to a singular human institution, a church denomination that would require a Catholic C, a a capital C. We are not a singular human institution, but we are Catholic because we believe that all the believers of every time and place, every nation and people belong to one spiritual body indwelt by the Holy Spirit and sharing together in one truth that is the gospel. This is what makes us the holy Catholic church. So this morning what I want to do is we spent a good deal of time on that last week is I want to spend some time looking at the church and really making an argument for why we shouldn't finish looking at the church when we're done today, but we should continue to, to seriously make it our life's endeavor to look at the church. We're going to make that argument by looking at Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. I'd love it if you would turn with me. There are some powerful words in here that you need to see. There is an argument that is being made that should compel, I would argue, change our behavior, our intentions, and our worship. Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to look... Read this morning verses 1 through 13, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, and look at just a few of the verses that are in there together in detail. All right, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, 
a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now that's the topic of our morning, the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that was that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Heavenly Father, you know how much... I have come to love this text, how much I've come to love the the book of Ephesians. It is grace to me. It is no wonder that Paul, at the beginning of the letter, would, would speak grace and peace to you, and at the end of the letter would conclude with grace and peace to you. Lord, that this letter has become grace and peace to us. Lord, I pray that we would take hold of it, that you would give us understanding, that your spirit would guide us in truth that we would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened. Lord, I pray that if there is unbelief in the room, that your unbelief, that unbelief would be set aside because of revelation. If there's doubt, that the mystery would be made clear in this scripture. And Lord, that you would grant us understanding and faith, joy, encouragement, worship, strength, because of our time in your word this morning, so that we can say it's, it's what the Lord has done. He's worked by his word in the midst of the people this morning. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to look into the mystery. The mystery is clearly the, the central idea of the passage, the mystery that is revealed in the passage. This is the mystery, the passage says. In verse 6, where we're going to really begin to dig in, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. All of this is in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So this is the mystery. Now the thing about a mystery is a mystery ceases to be a mystery if it is then revealed, do you see? So this is important. 
One of the things that gets said, and there's truth to it, it's just not what this passage is getting at. One of the things that's said is, is a person will sort of look at the teachings of the church, look, at, look through the scriptures and what's taught there and say, man, I just get so confused after they've read maybe through the Bible once or twice or gone to church for a few years and say, yeah, I just get really confused and it's all a mystery anyway, I just believe. Well, that's not what this is talking about. Yes, there is much that is a mystery. We talked about the Trinity in detail last week, and we still leave going, whoa, that's a mystery. The, the mystery that God would choose to love us who are unlovable. That's a mystery. I don't, I don't get what's going on there, but I'm amazed by it. It's mysterious. But this mystery is no longer mysterious. It has been revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in his gospel. And so consider the way that Paul uses the word mystery here. It's not mysterious because it's unknown. It's mysterious because it's true. It's astoundingly, mysteriously true. Let me give you an example of a mystery that has been made known and yet remains mysterious. How can the death of Jesus bring about eternal life? That is astounding, mysterious, and yet revealed. The whole question of the Old Testament, it arises from the promise of God being to bring salvation to all the families of the earth. That is the promise of God. But it's a mystery because we're not sure how he's going to do it, okay? We don't know that, and so we ask the question, how? How can God bring salvation to a rebellious people? How can God bring salvation to all the families of the earth? We ask as a question in the Old Testament. It is a mystery that is yet to be revealed there. How can God bring a people who are far off near, a people who are far off not only to, from one another, but they are far off from the holiness of God, so that when they see the holiness of God, like Isaiah who is supposed to be close to God, when he sees the holiness of God, he says, Whoa! Curse am I and all the people around me when he sees the holiness of God. That doesn't sound like salvation. That sounds like a mystery that salvation could come to someone like Isaiah. This is the mystery. The mystery is salvation. That's why Paul explains the mystery of the gospel in three ways in our passage this morning. The first way he explains it, you can see it, you can find the three points. You don't even have to wait for me to tell, him, tell you them, you can write them down right away. They're in the verse 6. The mystery of the gospel is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. It's the first thing. Though it is a work of God's grace, it is not a surprise that Jesus would announce salvation for Israel. It's still a work of God's grace. It's not an automatic deal. Look, Israel's my people, so they like get saved and stuff. No, there's still a work of grace that is needed for the sinners of Israel, including Isaiah, as we saw in the confession this morning. God has clearly been working throughout redemption history for the salvation of the Jewish people. The Exodus, where God calls the people out of Egypt to become his people, to be dedicated to his worship, given his law to set them apart from the nations. It's clear in the Exodus that God intends Israel to be his child, that God intends that they would inherit the glory of his kingdom. 
But the question is still how? The mystery of the gospel is that Israel would be saved. But it continues. You see, the passage says the mystery of the gospel is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with Israel. These surrounding rebellious nations, those who have been cut off from the worship at the temple, those who know nothing of God's law, how would they be saved? How would they become part of the salvation people, heirs with Israel? Though God has spoken even in the Old Testament of the salvation of all the peoples of the earth, it is a mystery that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs of God's kingdom with Israel. Now, there's a second thing that is a a mystery. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, and secondly, that they're members of the same body. We'll come back to this, but let's be clear about the doctrine of the church. In the doctrine of the church, we believe that there is not multiple churches. Now, that's relevant to us today. It's relevant because we see the church so divided over so many things. We look around and we say there's not multiple churches, and yet we look around and say there are multiple churches. In fact, there's probably more churches than there needs to be in some places, even though that there's more work of the gospel to be done because of divisions. Not all of those divisions are worthy divisions, many of which are wrong divisions. And yet the teaching of the scriptures is that there is not multiple churches, but One church, and that is a mystery. Now, while that's relevant to us today, what's relevant in the passage is Paul is saying that that there are not two churches, the Jewish church and the Gentile church, but rather the Jews and the Gentiles are part of one body. There's not one Jewish church, a sort of pure church, or the real people of God, and then another Gentile church that are sort of second-rate add-ons that get to hang out in the outer courts as a different body. That's a mystery. How could God do that? Make these two that are so very divided, how can God make them one? The third thing, again, it's in the text. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Partakers of the promise. Now, this is worth, worth remembering. Why is there one church? You see, the church doesn't find its definition by, by what we're like or where we're from or what we've done. We find our definition, our reality, in our hope that has been secured for us. And friends, there is one hope. There is one end for the church, and that is to be an inheritor of the kingdom, the recipients of eternal life, a people who are forgiven, a people who are made a body and worshipers of God. There is one hope, therefore there is one church, and there is one means to that hope. The end is the promise and hope of the church to be reconciled to God and in him have eternal life. And there is one means, which is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's why it says it like it does. We're partakers of the promise. And there's one promise for Israel and Gentiles. And so there's one church with one promise. And how is that promise secured? Two ways. In Christ Jesus, through the gospel. 
in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We are one church because we have one hope. And we are one church because we are brought to that hope by means of Christ and his gospel. There is one church, and that is a mystery. It's amazing. Now, we're going to go to another verse in here and focus on it and allow it to drive us to what I think is a a huge implication in this section of Scripture. Verse 9. Paul's been explaining why he preaches, what's the purpose of his proclamation, and he says that it is to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. The plan of the mystery hidden in God. The purpose of the preaching of the gospel is to bring to light for everyone the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. That's the purpose of the proclamation of the gospel, to bring to light what is found in God. Now we're told in this passage, just as a side note, who created all things. Why do we begin the Apostles' Creed the way we do? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Right here in this beautiful explanation of the mystery of salvation, integral to to what is the mystery of salvation is that the creator is the one who did it. The creator is the redeemer, the one who created all things. The one who came up with the plan, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God is hidden in the creator. Here's what that means. When God does his creative work, he knows what's going on in redemption. What that means is redemption is not plan B. Redemption is the creator's plan. Redemption is the plan of the creator, that the crucified Christ was in the mind of the creator when he did his creative work. The sovereign God knew what he was doing in creating this perfect people who would rebel against him, that he would send the Christ and work redemption to draw out from among the rebels one people. Redemption is the work of the creator, the plan of the mystery hidden in God for ages. Here's what that means. Redemption requires the suffering of the Savior. Now, this is truly a mystery. That affliction is the plan of the creator. We ought to remember that God made the earth and all who dwell in it in perfection. This is true. God is the perfect creator. He did not make a mistake. And it is we who rebelled, are responsible for the rebellion and the fall of creation. We are the ones who broke peace of creation. God, perfect creator, we rebels. And yet, from the beginning, hidden for ages in God the creator, there is a plan for redemption. And that plan was for a savior to suffer. Isaiah, again, Isaiah 53, verse 10. I would encourage you to write that down. Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, speaking of the savior, the redeemer, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, 10. Affliction was the plan of the creator. But it was 
such mercy and grace that the plan was for his own suffering, not ours. The plan of the creator was for Jesus to suffer in the place of sinners. The affliction was both the joy and the glory of the Christ to secure for himself a people. The mysterious plan of the creator was a plan to suffer in order to work this greater thing called redemption. This becomes an essential doctrine for the church. It's what I reminded us recently of when, when I mentioned Martin Luther's theology of the cross versus or as opposed to the theology of glory. That, that theology of the cross from Martin Luther is that the church best shines the unsearchable riches of Christ, not when we strut and flex and put on big shows, not when we glory. The church best shines the glory of Christ when we're willing to suffer for his sake. We are a church with a theology of suffering. It's not in our legalistic perfectionism that we best display the mystery of the gospel. We don't put on display the greatness of our God by ourselves being perfect. And it's not in our cultural syncretism. There is a way that we do this today where we treat congregations like consumers to be entertained. And so we put on big glory shows. And God's not glorified there because it's not the way of the creator to work in redemption. The way that he works is through suffering, a people with a theology of the cross. God is glorified in our delight in the mystery of the gospel such that it's our joy. Here's how we walk out the theology of the cross. It's our joy to repent. And I'll tell you, repenting feels like suffering, doesn't it? It might even feel like dying. It might feel like counting it all joy when you suffer trials of many kinds. And friends, there's no greater trial that I've suffered in my life than my own sin. It's when we consider it a great advantage to deny ourselves, when we consider it a faithful and good and beautiful walk to tape our, up our cross and follow him. That is a theology of suffering because it's the way of the creator in working redemption that it includes affliction of the son. And so the church follows after him. So what is the plan of the mystery? When we read the Old Testament without paying attention closely, it seems like God has left most of the people of the earth just go. It seems like that's what his big plan is. He, so he, he says, everybody else be damned. But I'll take this stubborn, small, stiff-necked people that really aren't anything in and of themselves. I'll take them. But God has from eternity set his sights on all the families of the earth. Look at Genesis chapter 12 and the promise that's given to that small man that didn't even have a family yet. God has from eternity had his sights on all the families of the earth. God's plan is that in Christ he would reconcile one people for himself out from among every tribe, tongue, and nation. The means of that reconciliation is his own suffering. That through his suffering... He would make a people, a people who are a, a cosmic, creative plan of God, was not only to create heavens and earth and all that is in it, 
The cosmic creative plan of God was to create for himself a people twice. One time he made us, and the second time he bought us so that we become children of God. It's true, but we're also inheritors of the kingdom. This is the work of the creator and redeemer. And here, it just keeps getting thicker, all right? Look at verse 10. We've already looked at verse 9, and to bring delight for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery of hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that, verse 10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church. By means of his formation of the church, God reveals his manifold wisdom by catching a glimpse of the very existence of the church, you see that something is being revealed. Friends, that, if you hear what it actually says, that should blow our minds. The manifold wisdom of God, manifold, multifaceted, many-sided, multidimensional, as, as Pastor Chan Kilgore loved to put it, it is the multifaceted jewel of the gospel. We can turn it in our hands, and it reflects the light of the glory of God in, in infinite ways. The manifold wisdom of God is revealed where? Well, obviously, by looking at the throne of heaven, like Isaiah got to do. Obviously. No, (laughs) by looking at his work in the church. You see, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, they can look at God on the throne. But when they want to see the wisdom of God at work, they look at the church and they are mind blown. And they say, that's multifaceted, like a jewel of wisdom. And his glory shines at every turn in his working in the church. And just, unless you're like getting like, wow, that's really neat in an abstract sense that God's wisdom could be revealed in the, friends, it's you and me together with the holy Catholic church of, of every age. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places look at God's work among us to see the manifold wisdom of God. There's, it's important to pay attention to the verbs of Scripture. Sometimes they're active, sometimes they're passive, and all the English teachers are like, yeah, tell us all about it. And the rest of you are like, what? Passive, all right? The question is, who's doing the verb? Okay? Well, it says in verse 10, if you look at it with me, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. It's a passive verb. It is being made known through the church. It's not the church is making it known. It's passive. The church plays a passive role in making the manifold wisdom of God known. God is the one who is playing the active role. Paul isn't proclaiming this one. No, God is. God is proclaiming his manifold wisdom through the church. God is the one who makes the church, and God is the one who makes his glory known through the church. His his manifold wisdom is made known precisely because of the way in which he made the church. 
This is his wisdom, how he made the church. I've wondered, is there another way that he could have done it? And the answer is no. There is one way that he could have done it to put his manifold wisdom on display in the way that he did. And it's by the sacrifice of the Son, through affliction, through a theology of the cross, called out from among every tribe and tongue and nation, members of one body, by his blood, in the flesh, through the cross. This, these are the ways, the many faceted ways of the wisdom of God being made known through and in the church. But here's the thing. The church isn't proclaiming this one either. What's being talked about here, the way that the mystery of the gospel is made known in this way, the the way the mystery of, of the manifold wisdom of God is not necessarily by what we say or by what we do. It's so important. It's that we exist at all. You see it. It's not that we've managed to get really eloquent with our skills in proclaiming the gospel. It's not that we've mastered the ways of the keeping of God's law. It's that we love God at all. At all. It's that we would be brokenhearted in our failure to walk after the ways of God. At all. That God would work by his son to make a church who would actually repent at all in the way that they've treated each other. It's no mystery that we're hypocrites. Friends, that is manifest. It's a mystery that he's chosen to love us and that he's worked in us to make us a people and call us holy by his grace and mercy, not by our performance. That is the proclamation. That's the manifold wisdom of God that we are Christ's workmanship. Ephesians chapter 2. Making known what? What is God's workmanship? That his workmanship actually worked. That there is a church that following the death on the cross, following the resurrection, following the ascension, following the giving of the Spirit, a church appears made of Israel and Gentiles. One body, one hope, one people inheriting one kingdom. You see, the Satan, demonic rulers and authorities, they sought to rob God of his creation, but God in Christ revealed a whole people for himself. The demonic powers, they couldn't steal that from him, but God created a new family out from among the old. How does the church display the manifold wisdom of God? John Piper says it best, by being the church Christ created. By simply existing. Now, in verse 10, it says another thing. That really just, it just takes what we've already discovered and makes it deeper and richer and thicker and more profound. Of course, I'm not sure how you can get more profound than the manifold wisdom of God, but it says that God might make known in the second half now, be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Here we see who's looking, who's discovering the manifold wisdom of God. This is the most mind-blowing, shocking, humbling statements I can think that I can make about the church especially when I remember that I'm a part of that body, that I'm a part of that church, that the church 
is the epicenter of God's display of his power, wisdom, and glory. Not merely before a watching world, but before the host of heaven. Friends, that is mind-blowing. The angels long to look into these things. And they do. And what do they see? Man, that church is cool. No! The manifold wisdom of God worked. And it's working. And he who began a good work in that church will bring it to completion. All of the host of heaven see this. They're looking around and they're amazed at what God has done by his divine plan of salvation, by his reconciling a rebellious people and making them one together with God and one another. That's why in verse 21, at the end of our chapter, if you look at it with me, verse 21 says, to him be glory, where? In the church and in Christ Jesus. Here's the beauty of that. That's not two things anymore. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus because we have become by grace, mercy, lavish, and rich. We have become the body of Christ. The church has a head and it's him. And his glory is being manifest here. God is glorified before all the host of heaven in the existence and the life and the keeping of the church. It's in the church that the glory of God is most clearly made known. Now, verse 11, just very briefly here. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. How did he make this church the playground of his manifold wisdom, the display case of the jewel of his glory, how did he realize it? Bring it into reality. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, a new body with Christ as the head. I want to go to another scripture. I want to just very simply read it to make this point that the church is realized in Christ. Colossians chapter 1, in another letter speaking really about many of the same things, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 22, it says this, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. You see, he's creator. In heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, not only the church is created by him, but all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, they were made by him too, who look at the church and see the manifold wisdom of God, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Creation is displaying the glory of God. This is true. And he is the head of the body, the church. Brothers and sisters, we have a head. He's part of us now. He's not... He's not a disembodied head. That's gross. The church is beautiful because he's linked himself with us. That we're his body. We're not just the body. We're the body of Christ. And we're not just a body. We have a head. And his name is the Christ, the firstborn from among the dead. 
And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It struck me in recent months that Jesus is the first member of the church. He's the first partner in the gospel. He just so happens to be the performer of the gospel and the only member of the church who performed it. But he's the first to rise from the dead. And in the flesh, the first man in heaven. And he took a seat. The God the Son made flesh, taking a seat so that all who follow after him would follow in the wake that he's prepared for us. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. How did he do it? Through the theology of the cross. You see, it's not only in creation, but also in redemption that God shows his preeminence. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to, rep- in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There is a new body in Christ And with Christ as the head, we've been reconciled through him, specifically through his suffering on the cross. The revelation of the mystery of redemption has been realized in Christ. It is real in who he is and what he's done. And we are a body. A body that that makes known the manifold wisdom of God because Christ is our head. Now, there is, I've already said the word, but there's a playground of application here. I mean, we could just sit down and and take all the building blocks that are in Ephesians chapter 3 and build glorious, beautiful implications and applications for our immediate lives. Let me just give it a try with you for a moment. Why do I love participating in the life of the church? Let me give you just a heads up of why I don't. It's not you. Mm -mm, mm -mm. You're not why I love participating in the life of the church. Now, I love you. It's truly true. I've grown to appreciate you. And I know all of you are like, can you just stop talking? Because I have something to say about you. (laughs) Right? Yeah, it's the same story with you two. You're you're too much work. I myself, I'm far too broken. I'm a sinner and I'm weak. We as a group of people in ourselves are simply not the compelling reason to participate in a life together. I participate with the church not because of the church. In fact, we as a group of people are sinful, selfish, prideful, hypocrites, and we make a good argument for why not to participate in the life of the church. We do. We participate together as the church because according to the unsearchable riches of Christ, that is his grace and mercy. Just look at Ephesians 1 and 2, and he falls over himself to talk about unsearchable riches and lavish grace. Because of The unsearchable riches of Christ, the church is where the manifold wisdom of God is revealed. 
And that's worthy of our attention. That's worth paying attention to. You see, I'm not here because I want to see you. I'm here because I want to see God, and I hope it's the same for you. Would I love to climb the highest mountain and look over all the earth? Some of you have done it, and it's it's amazing up there, isn't it? Would I love to see the landscapes of Yellowstone? One of you are wearing a Yellowstone shirt today. I'm sure it's beautiful. I've never been there, but I'm sure it's beautiful. Would I love to see the deep forests of the redwoods? Yeah. But could that compare to looking at the glories of the manifold wisdom of God? What in all of creation could you search out that could compare to seeing the manifold wisdom of God? What did the hosts of heaven look at? They were there at creation. They not only got to see the mountains, they got to see God make them. And they're still curious to see more. Where do they look? They look at the church where the manifold wisdom of God is playing about and effective. They look at redemption. They look at the church. Now, there's something I think that's a bit odd. I've had others tell us it's a bit odd. When Sandy and I travel, we go on vacation, we do something that might seem a little out of place for a pastor and his wife and family to do when we're on vacation. We love to visit the church when we find it in other places. If we can, we try to grab a lunch or dinner with the pastor, some of the partners there. I mean, we're on vacation from the church, right? So we're trying to get away from these people. My goodness, leave us alone for just five minutes. And you are welcome to not call. (laughs) Why in the world would we search out the church and then do lunch together? Wouldn't we want to spend our time resting by a beach, visiting a park, seeing the sights? And let me tell you, we do. We do. But when we visit the church and spend time with people, we get to see something and be refreshed by something. We get to find something that is not available anywhere else in all of creation. It is definitively why we cannot say, I am closest to God or I see him most clearly when I'm fishing on my boat alone on Sunday morning. There is a place where his manifold wisdom is made known, where his glory shines. It's through the church. There's simply nothing in all of creation that is so refreshing to the soul than to behold God. Let's be clear, to behold God, to behold me, to behold you. Nah, not so much. But to behold God working among us, that's refreshing. We get to be reminded when we gather together, the gospel actually works. It's actually created one people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from Indiana to Wisconsin to Central Florida to Williamsburg, Virginia to South Africa to Mongolia and Dubai and to the ends of the earth. We've been able to travel and see God's wisdom works. In all of these places, he wasn't lying. Perhaps his wisdom will work for me. And we're strengthened and encouraged. I want to encourage you to think very practically about this doctrine of the church. Because the doctrine of the church is actually the doctrine of the manifold wisdom of God and the unsearchable riches of Christ. Do you hear that? When you think of what is the church, you ought to, according to Ephesians, think of the manifold wisdom of God and the glorious unsearchable riches of Christ. It's in the church that his power is at work in verse 20. Generation to generation and forever at work. How might it be so? 
very practically. When you're tired and weary, when you feel like taking a day off or just sleeping in on Sunday, wouldn't that be nice, sleeping in, especially on a nice cool day like this morning, right? Just take the night off on a long day, community groups waiting, just doing a lunch at home with the relatives or in in place of continuing the celebration. Some of these things may be wise for you. It really may be. It may even be God's grace and kindness to give you that space of rest. But it may also be true that these places could be refreshing, encouraging, strengthening to get to see the manifold wisdom of God at work in the place that he works, in the midst of his church, to see the truth of the gospel bearing fruit You who are weary, what encouragement and strength you could receive if you could see again and believe that Jesus really has made a body for himself, that the riches of Christ truly are actually unsearchable. That's We can go and search for mercy and grace at work in the church, and when we do search, our search is never in vain because the jewel turns and we see something new. We will always find some mercy of God undiscovered at work the whole time until we saw it at work in the church. So this morning, is your worship faint? I've heard some say that their singing feels dry of late. Let me suggest that it might not be the music or the songs or the sound equipment. Let me suggest that perhaps what you need is to look for the worthiness of Christ to be worshipped and to look in the place where he's chosen to display his glory. That perhaps as you're singing, you kind of already know the words, you can look around and say, I cannot believe that he could save these people. That's amazing. And then you sing. That's worthy. I only warn you, when you look at the church, don't look for the church's perfection. Don't look for our righteousness, a righteousness that rises from our deeds. That's called self-righteousness. Look for the grace of God to forgive sin, to reconcile the people who have wronged one another. I'll tell you, one of the things that's true is I have stopped looking for the perfect church. I've even stopped looking for a pretty good church. I'll tell you what I'm on the hunt for. I'm hunting for a church that knows it and repents regularly of it and cries out to God, make the repentance stop by your grace. Bring us to your perfection by your manifold work of wisdom in us. I'm looking for a broken church. And there I see the wisdom of God at work. It's one thing to walk in holiness is another thing to fall short of the glory of God, to experience the immeasurable riches of the power of God toward us, to once be dead in trespasses and sins, but now be made alive together in Christ, to see what he has shown, which is the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is what we get to see in the playground of God's grace, which is the church. So the invitation is let us go and look. And if you see the grace that I see working there among that broken people is the grace that I need, cry out for it, that you might become the playground of the grace and mercy of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've done this. We say it is a glorious mystery that has been revealed in Christ, his person and his work. 
We want to worship you, and so show us your work. Let us be astounded by the miracle of your grace. I know that there are, there are those here who have said, if God could just show me that he's real by some great miracle, would they look around and say, this is a miracle that these people love God at all? And would you work the miracle in them as well? The miracle of salvation, the miracle to love and be reconciled to God and one another. Lord, I thank you that the day will come when the imperfection will cease and will be brought to perfection at the day of Christ Jesus in which you will complete that great work that you have begun in your church. We long for it and we just pray that we would see evidences of it to strengthen us for perseverance, long-suffering, denial of self, and taking up of cross today. Thank you, Lord. Fill up our worship with a glimpse of your wisdom. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your great name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.